My name is Tim, I'm one of the elders here at the church, and my privilege is to bring God's word to you today. This is the penultimate sermon in our series through the book of First Corinthians. It's been quite a journey for those of you that have been with us throughout the whole series, as we've been looking at this church, whom the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter, loved very, very much, despite it being a church full of all kinds of mess and immorality and sin, and yet also a church which knew God's grace, a church which was full of a catalogue of issues, and yet Paul refers to this church as saints, holy ones, set apart. And I find personally great encouragement is to be had from this letter, because uh, we're not all perfect, are we? (laughs) And yet we need the grace of God, and God's grace is sufficient for us in our weaknesses. Hallelujah. Last week, we were reading the first half of chapter 15, where Paul is asserting that the resurrection of Jesus happened, and the absolute necessity that the resurrection happened for this gospel to really be good news. There were those in the church in Corinth who were questioning whether there was a resurrection from the dead. And Paul is absolutely baffled by this issue. And he makes the point, if Christ is not raised from the dead, if Christ is not alive, then everything we do is utterly pointless and futile. In fact, he goes so far as to say, you are to be pitied more than everyone else. But Christ is risen and Christ is alive and we have been declaring haven't we this morning the victory of Jesus Christ over death over sin and over our lives and this second half of chapter 15 continues the theme and we get to this tremendous moment toward the end of the chapter where there's a great victory cry of God's people And we're going to do that together. I'm going to want us to read that. Not just read it, but shout it, declare it together, which is what we're going to do in a moment. This section of 1 Corinthians 15 deals with the certainty of our resurrection from the dead. Now, that's good news. The certainty of resurrection from the dead for all those who are in Christ. As certain as Jesus was raised, so certainly shall we be raised as well. Praise God. So what we're going to do is we're going to read from verse 35. When we get to verse 54, where it says, that is written will take place, I'm going to ask us to stand, and then I want us to boldly speak, confidently speak the next couple of verses together. And as we speak it, I want us to declare over our own death and to declare over death the victory of Jesus Christ together. I want you to do this in faith. I want us to do this courageously. I want us to declare the victory of Jesus together. And I want this room to thunder with that cry. It's a victory cry of the army of God, the people of God, over our great enemy. So we're going to do that together. So let's read from verse 35. I'm in the CSB translation. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? 
What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, One star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. I invite you, if you can, to stand with me. And in faith, I want us to declare this truth together. So after three, read with me, death has been swallowed up. After three. One, two, three. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Let's say that again. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's applaud him together, everyone.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Please take your seats. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious, breathtaking victory your son has won on our behalf. We thank you for the victory of Jesus Christ over death. We thank you that at the cross, death died in Christ. We thank you that at the cross, the curse of death was dealt with forever. We thank you, Jesus, you swallowed it, that you destroyed it. And we thank you for that great and glorious day when you return and the fullness of that victory will be revealed in all creation. And what a wonderful shout it will be on that day when the trumpet sounds, when the dead are raised, when we are glorified with you, when we see you face to face, and when in the twinkling of an eye we become just as you are and to be like you forevermore. That day when all sickness will go forever, that day where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more grieving, no more mourning. Oh Lord, we long for that day. What a great and glorious and certain hope we have. So Holy Spirit, would you help us today to grasp hold of this truth in a life-transforming way that we wouldn't leave here the same, that our faith would be so strengthened and our hearts would be quickened again to worship and adore you, Lord Jesus. Help me, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in this passage, we are thinking about the life to come. We're thinking about the nature of our resurrection. And I wonder how many of you spend time thinking about those things. Next week, as a family, we go on holiday to France. It was a surprise holiday. Some friends of ours said, would you like to join us? We were like, yes, please. So I am looking forward to pano raisins and croissants and cheese and wine. I've got to be honest, I've been looking forward to it for a while. I'm anticipating a good French holiday that came as a massive bonus to us. Now, in the same way, we anticipate things on the horizon that we're excited about, holidays, weddings, parties, as we do our research, as we anticipate, as we plan, how much more so should we anticipate and look forward to our eternal home? And I wonder why we don't do it more. I wonder if it's because maybe our idea of heaven and eternity has been a little muddled by unhelpful teaching or ideas of hearts and clouds. Maybe the occasional song we sing, this is what heaven looks like, this is what heaven sounds like, you know that phrase? My kids, we were singing that song the other day, my kids said, is it going to be like this? Right. Well, I think the heart of what that lyric means is, anyway, we, we moved on. It's very hard for us to conceive and to grasp of this heaven, this glory, this future. And yet we can, and we should, think about it a lot and anticipate it a lot. And the Apostle Paul did, and he'd encourage us to do so. For those of you that enjoy a good theological book, this book called simply Heaven by Randy Alcorn 
is an outstanding book on this subject. Full of scripture, full of truth, full of theology. If you'd like to dig into this more, I'd recommend this book. It's a pretty thick book. It's pretty theological, but I found this incredibly helpful. He even goes on to do what I call theologically, biblically informed speculation. So for those of you that have lost loved pets, for example, you might find something encouraging here. In the realms of speculation, right? I'll leave you to draw the dots but it's a really good book. So this passage starts with this question. How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And Paul's very abrupt response, he says, you fool. It's quite a strong response to what seems to be quite a valid question. The question is, what's it gonna be like in the resurrection? What will heaven be like? And he says, you fool. So the challenge we have is not really grasping um, the sense in which this question is asked. This actually isn't, um, it's quite disingenuous. So he's in the report that he received. He's hearing all kinds of questions, all kinds of issues which are taking place in the church. And it seems that as well as questioning the validity of Jesus' resurrection, there are further questions about the whole idea of our resurrection from the... Well, how, how, does, how does this body get resurrected? I mean, seriously? Is that, is that really going to happen? What about bodies that are cremated or those that are lost at sea? How is he going to piece it all together? And Paul says, you fool. Strong rebuke to a disingenuous question. But I think, nevertheless, the question's an okay one for us to ask. I mean, I don't know. My kids, each of them at some point has asked me, Dad, will we fly? In heaven, we fly, all of them have asked me that question, and I always say, "Well, here's the thing: what you have to understand is there's an intermediary heaven. We go to paradise; it's an intermediary heaven. But Jesus will return, and one day He'll make everything new, and heaven and earth will become one, and it will be amazing. So we need to think about the, the new earth. And they say, "Yeah, but Dad, can we fly?" <laughs> it's like maybe, maybe Jesus ascended. I can imagine that. I think the questions about what the afterlife will be like are important. But the point Paul is making here is we don't need to doubt these things. And actually, as he goes through this passage, he he uses an illustration and uses an illustration from nature. And he says, look, think. The evidence is in fact all around One of the biggest challenges you and I have often with these kinds of questions is that we don't see as we should. I often wonder, if I was, even in this fallen world, if I was to walk around without any tint of sin, if I was to see things perfectly clearly, how amazing would I find this world that I live in? If you look at a leaf and you find it infinitely fascinating, but we can miss the beauty and the wonder in creation. And Paul uses the illustration of a seed sown. Verse 38, God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. So he's speaking about the resurrection, and he says, look, even a seed must die. And the seed that is sown dies in the ground, and it decays, and it rots, and it appears to be the end. And then gradually over time, the shoot appears and the plant grows up 
And he is speaking about that as a picture. It's a picture for what our life now and our life to come is. Imagine the acorn. Imagine the tiny acorn against the towering, mighty oak tree. The oak tree came from this acorn, and yet it's utterly unlike it. It's so glorious in comparison to the humble origins of the acorn. And no one oak tree is the same. There is beauty and difference and variety and different sizes and different shapes the branches take. And he's saying, in in that way, so will it be with the resurrection. Look and think about the seeds sown in the ground. Do any of you notice how, if you've lived any length of time, I, I don't, it, maybe it's just me, but I, I've become more interesting with, interested in gardening the older I get. Is that true of anyone else? It seems like the older you get, the more fascinated you are by gardening, right? And I, the other day, we, we, uh, our village has a Facebook page, and someone was advertising on this Facebook page, we're doing some work, we've got some rose bushes, they're going for free. So Lizzie said, go and get, go and get the rose bush. So I went round with my shovel, and this rose bush was beautiful. It was in, starting to bloom. It was a mature rose bush. I felt so wrong, digging down and ripping this thing up. And I, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I tried to avoid the roots. I tried to lift it up. And we, we, we took this thing back home. I dug a lovely hole for it. I've got all the technical jargon, by the way. Lovely hole. <laughs> Dug it back into the soil, padded it down, watered it, watered it, watered it, and within two weeks, wilting and death. And this poor, sad flower wilted and died. And I'm looking at this thing, and I'm just so depressed. I'm like, what, what did I do wrong? And I'm, like, I'm just going to rip it up and throw it away. And I thought, no, I'll just wait a bit longer. And for weeks and weeks, this thing just looked dead. And then my utter amazement and delight when I saw a tiny little leaf shoot. And now there are leaves all over it. The older we get, the more into gardening we are, right? <laughs> so some of you who are young are like, I just don't care about it. I just, I just want a football pitch. My granddad, the older he got, the more fascinated he was by his garden. And I'd go to his house, and he'd always, he'd always, I loved my granddad, and I loved talking with him. And I'd cycle over, and I was about 14, 15, and we'd have breakfast together, and I'd ask him questions about the war. He was a commando during the war. I was fascinated by his life, and he wasn't a Christian. Actually, he, he went through his whole life very hardened towards Christianity, but much of his family... In fact, his daughter, my mum, his son, my uncle, both Christians, both in church leadership, all their kids loved Jesus. The odds were kind of, humanly speaking, stacked against him from remaining in this hardened place because we were praying for him and praying for him and praying for him. We'd have breakfast and he'd say, let's, let's walk around the garden. And he'd walk from one flower to the next flower to the next flower and he'd give me the names I can remember the chrysanthemums. They were particularly impressive. And towards the end of his life, he began to talk about faith. 
and his heart began to soften. Now, it wasn't like he was interpreting tongues at the end of his life or anything like that, but there was a, there was a sense of a, a shoot, a little shoot. And so Paul says, seeds sown. And the whole garden picture is very biblical. When Jesus is crucified, and there are the two thieves either side of him, and one thief is mocking, and the other thief says, how are you mocking? We are dying as guilty men. This one has done nothing wrong. He says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him, and he says, truly I say unto you today, you will join me in paradise. That word paradise, that Greek word paradise, means walled garden. You will join me in the garden. And the whole story began, didn't it, in the garden. You think of the Garden of Eden, this paradise, this perfect paradise, where God was with his people, where God walked in the cool of the night. This garden that Adam and Eve were instructed to take care of, to look after, to cultivate. Let this garden increase and go out into the world. And how it was in that garden that sin and death entered. When it all went horribly wrong. When Adam and Eve stopped trusting in God's word. And how they believed the lie. And the tragedy that followed. And the pain and the sickness and the death that followed. It, it began in a garden. I referenced this passage last week. But I want to read it to you. In John chapter 20. On the day of Jesus' resurrection. On Easter day. Just before we are told that the tomb, if we look at verse 41 of chapter 19, is in a garden. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified and a new tomb in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. That's where they placed Jesus. Jesus' tomb was in a garden. In death, he's placed in this garden. And then we have this wonderful narrative in verse 11 of chapter 20. Listen to these words. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told him. And I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? And look at this, listen to this. Supposing he was the gardener. Supposing he was the gardener. I wonder how many times you've read that and just moved on to the next verse. Mary thought he was the gardener. She was in the garden. It was early in the morning. Who else is going to be there? Supposing he was the gardener. She replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Beautiful, stunning, intimate, 
beautiful moment. Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Wonderful resurrection account. Jesus as a seed sown in the garden, in death, in the tomb. And then three days later, alive. Glorious, risen, glorified. He's like this blooming flower in the context of this garden. Death has ended for him. He's alive. And she turns around and she supposed him to be the gardener. And how true a statement that is. He is the great gardener. The true gardener. I want you to remember where it was the suffering of Jesus began. It was in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane. Jesus suffered in the garden. He sweat drops of blood as he cried out to his father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but yours be done. Evil entered into the garden in Eden, and Jesus comes to reverse, to reverse, to rectify, to come and to, and to, to undo, to powerfully Undo the curse of sin. And in the garden, as he sweat drops of blood and he anticipated the cup. What is this cup? It's spoken of through the scriptures. The cup is the, the wrath of a holy God towards evil and sin, which must be dealt with. The cup that Jesus was to swallow in the garden where his sufferings began. In a garden where he was buried like a seed. And in a garden where he was resurrected like a new blooming flower. Glorious and before Mary. And Jesus is the true gardener. And just as Adam failed in his mandate to take this garden and to see it across the world, Jesus, the true gardener, is sowing seeds into hearts of men and women in every nation, in every tribe, in every tongue around this whole planet. And he's watering that seed. And life is emerging. And fruit trees are growing and oak trees are growing and there is a seed a kernel in each of you right now a seed of what will one day be something unimaginably glorious what will it be like we'll try and get an acorn to imagine itself as an oak tree almost impossible for us to do. I say almost because I think, I think we're able to use our imaginations. One of the problems we often have is, is we, start with, we start with planet Earth and we make our way up to imagine heaven. And yet heaven has 
the, the, the whole design of this planet, the, the way in which we're made, made in the image of God. God takes his image and he puts his image into us. And in the same sense, the image of the celestial, the city, the heavenly place, he began to bring to this earth in the garden. Now, of course, it was spoiled. And of course, this planet today is groaning and we have earthquakes, and we have famines, and we have climate change, and we have the effects of weathering, and all these kinds of things that cause pain and misery. But yet still, we see something of the beauty of the design of God. This garden, this garden that is being made. And you know how it ends in Revelation 22. This garden city comes down from heaven and there are rivers and fields and mountains and it's glorious. A garden city. For those of us who are English who love gardening, it's like, we love a good garden. But you think of the world and you think of the beauties of this world. You think of Victoria Falls or you think of the Alps you think of the Maldives. You think of New Zealand. You think of the scenery in Lord of the Rings. And you think this is like an acorn to the oak tree of what will come. Isn't that exciting to think about? In each of you right now is the kernel of what you will become. Now, we look at ourselves and we're like, I hope it's a lot better than this. <laughs> You know, and we're often reminded, we're reminded constantly of our weakness. You see through this passage, corruption, dishonor, weakness, the natural body of dust. We're constantly reminded of our weakness. This morning I heard Calvin, he was uh, dusting in his room and he was climbing on the bunk beds. And I'm, I'm trying to prepare and I'm hearing the creaking of the bunk beds. I'm thinking that really doesn't sound safe. So I go through, I say, I'm going to have to try and tighten this up. So I, I kind of pull the bunk bed, and as I pulled it, it collapsed on my head. <laughs> and I said to Lizzie, I said, you can have to come and see what's happened. And I said, at least it fell on me. <laughs> at least it fell on me. It wasn't. And you think, and I'm like, oh, you're reminded of your weakness. I've got, I have arthritis in my right knee from a sporting injury. And I know my injuries and my pains are nothing compared to many of yours. And we get older and weaker. And the body is called dishonorable. Our body makes often dishonorable sounds. And we're reminded, right? You'll be sat, you'll be having a meeting and suddenly the tummy starts growling. I know it's happened to you. It's not just me. Dishonorable, weak, there's corruption. But in you is the seed of what you will become. And there is tremendous hope and comfort. I think of my brother who suffers from disabilities. And I think of the challenges and the limitations of his life. And I think of his glorified body. 
And I know for many of you, you mourn the loss of loved ones. And for many of you, you're grieving even now the reality of death and the pain of death and what feels like the meaninglessness of death. And it's such a horrible pain. Weakness, corruption, death. Paul describes this as the consequence of the first man, the first Adam, the earthly man, the man of dust. Where Adam was told from the dust to create a garden, he became like dust because he did not trust God. But the glory, the glory of Easter, the glory of the resurrection is that it is defeated. And Jesus is the first fruits. So he is the glory of what we will all one day share in and participate in. Look, raised in incorruption, raised in glory, raised in power, raised spiritual body. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became the life-giving spirit. Jesus has come to do what Adam failed to do. And just as we bear the image of the man of dust now, one day we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Acts 1, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going up, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. That's a good verse to take your kids to when they ask, will we fly? That's a good verse. In the same way, Jesus glorified ascends into heaven. Right now, a real man, glorified man in heaven and he will return. The trumpets will sound. The trumpets will sound. The dead will be raised, and we will see him in his glory. And in the twinkle of an eye, I love that phrase, we will be like him forever, clothed with immortality. And so Paul, having taught this and having explained the certainty of our resurrection, he bursts out in this glorious victory song. Death has been swallowed up. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Death, you are not stinging anymore. As someone finally said, it's not stinging anymore. It's like this bee. That buzzes around, but the stinger is removed. It can't hurt you. It's there, and it's horrible. But sin has been dealt with. The sting, the separation from God, the ultimate doom and damnation and condemnation has been taken for all who put their trust and their hope in Jesus. Is that you today? This harks back to Isaiah 25 where we first read these words prophesying 
On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation, for the Lord's power will rest on this mountain. Jesus swallowed death in the agonies of the cross. You and I can't possibly begin to understand that suffering. But he swallowed and drank down from that cup so that the tears are wiped away from our eyes. I love the language used here. Not all of us will fall asleep. Those of us who have loved ones who have died, we've all had loved ones die. They're asleep. Think about that. They're asleep. They will be raised. They will be woken up. That's the the language of the Bible. We're thinking about. Speaks of a temporiness until they're awoken again. They'll wipe every tear from their face. I think of it like a child in the night who's awoken with a nightmare. And And you get hold of the child and you wipe the tears. Say, it's all over. It's all over. Just a bad dream. It's it's all over. There's a moment when God will take you and the tears will be wiped from your face and you'll hear those words, it's all over. It's all over. Enter into your eternal rest and your eternal home. Enter into the garden paradise I want you to have that certainty today it will happen the tears don't last they're temporary the pain doesn't last it's temporary what lasts is eternal glorious happiness and joy as I was flicking through this book I came across this, and I just thought I'd share it with you. Why not the band come, and we're going to have communion in a moment. An Indiana cemetery has a tombstone, more than 100 years old, with the following epitaph. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. An unknown passerby scratched these additional words on the tombstone. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) Do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're going? Do you know what comes next? 
do you have that kind of confidence? Why don't we stand? We're going to have communion together. And this is a reminder to us of why we can be confident in knowing where we go next. Because on that day when the trumpet sounds and we stand before God in judgment, no one will enter into the walled garden by pointing at their own heroics and CV. Paradise is for those who point to Jesus and say, because of him, because he did it, because he overcame, because he won, because he swallowed death, because he shed his blood, because his flesh was broken, because he did it. And that's the invitation. And it's simple. And it's in its simplicity that so many people come unstuck. Is it really that simple as believing? Is it really that simple as believing in Jesus and in what he's done? He said it himself. Believe in me. And you will have everlasting life. Believe in me. So this meal is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. The bread, his body broken. The wine, his blood shed. Victory over death. Victory over sin.